You're listening to the Bold Face Truth Podcast, episode 482. You can find information on anything referenced in this week's episode at amygreensmith.com slash EP482. Oh, well, hey there. Check you out listening to self-help pods and working on yourself. Fuck yeah. Quick question. You know those situations where your boss asks you to take on one more thing, or your partner asks what's bothering you, and you respond with a bold-faced lie? Oops. What would shift for you if you actually started telling the bold-faced truth? Everything. Listen, if you struggle with people-pleasing, perfectionism, and you could use some help with boundaries or speaking up, you are in the right place. Thank God. I am Amy Green-Smith. I'm a certified and credentialed life coach, hypnotherapist, and keynote speaker. Fancy. And I've been working in the personal development space since the mid-2000s. Vintage. Sometimes I'll be solo, other times you'll hear from smart folks offering you easy-to-implement tools to help you tell the bold-faced truth. Yes! Well, hello, pod people. Amy here, and we are jumping into a brand new series, and it's going to be a very short series, and I'll tell you why. This week and next week, we're going to be talking with two experts who are sharing information with us about addiction and recovery. And I want to be very clear about my particular place in the addiction recovery space. I am not an authority. I want everybody to be really clear (laughs) that this is not designed to take the place of any sort of professional support or counseling with regards to addiction. But I do think that there are so many of us who struggle with things that are being hidden. And I'm going to be giving a call to a a gal who's going to talk all about that. In fact, She wrote a book specifically called Stash, My Life in Hiding for that very reason. And she talks very candidly about how she wanted other women, specifically women of color and black women, to have some kind of resource to help them with this stuff. And so it's something that I think is an important conversation for us to have. I do drink alcohol. I do smoke weed. So I want to be clear that I'm not trying to say, hey, I'm sober too. But I do think these are the types of conversations that really we need to have. And we need to explore other people's lived experiences and what that looked like so that we can be really equipped in our own lives. So I hope you'll join me. The other thing that I wanted to mention is it could potentially be a trigger for some of you, if you are grappling with addiction, or if you are working through sobriety or recovery. So I just want to encourage you to take care of yourself if conversations like these tend to remind you of being in the throes of an addiction. Just tread lightly. You certainly can skip this week and next week. But I do think these are really awesome conversations to learn about and process. So Take care of yourself. Last week, we wrapped up our series on women's health. That was a really awesome three-part series. This week and next week, we're going to be talking addiction and recovery. Next week is going to be the incomparable Annie Grace, who is of the uh, This Naked Mind 
fame. If you are familiar with this naked mind or her 30 day alcohol experiment, she has a great perspective specifically around alcohol. But today I'm going to dial up a lovely, beautiful human who I'm so grateful that her life has crossed paths with mine. Her name is Laura Cathcart Robbins, and she specifically struggled not only with alcohol, but also with a pretty intense ambient addiction, as many as 10 ambient a day. So she was going through 300 pills a month. And see how I can do math, everybody? (laughs) But I'm going to give her a call. Hopefully I can catch her. I know she has sort of like this rigorous schedule around her wigs. So hopefully I can get a hold of her. I know her wigs for her head. Yes. But let me tell you a little bit about her with the hopes that we can get her on the phone. Her name is Laura Cathcart Robbins. She is the host of a very popular podcast called The Only One in the Room. If you have not listened to this pod, it is so fantastic. And it started because of Laura's experience of being the only black woman in a room of of hundreds and I believe even thousands of white women going to a personal empowerment conference, right? The work that I do in this world. And there is a lot of whitewashing that happens here. And so she started this podcast talking about what that's like being othered, being the only one in the room, and then started a podcast amplifying those voices of folks who have found themselves in similar situations. So you definitely have to check out The Only One in the Room. And I'm super excited about this. She is the author of the forthcoming Simon & Schuster memoir called Stash. That's what I was talking about earlier. The subtitle is My Life in Hiding. Hello. She has been active for many years as a speaker and school trustee and is credited for creating the Buckley School's nationally recognized Committee on Diversity, Equity, Inclusion, and Justice. Her recent articles in HuffPo and The Temper on the subjects of race, recovery, and divorce have garnered her worldwide acclaim. Not only that, but she's also a 2022 TEDx speaker, LA Moth Story Slam winner, hello, currently sits on the advisory board for the San Diego Writers Festival, as well as the Outliers HQ Podcast Festival. She is a force to be reckoned with. I'm so excited to share her story with all of you. So let's see if we can catch her. Let's dial her up. Hello. Laura, hey, it's Amy Greensmith. How are you? Amy, oh my goodness. It's so good to hear from you. Oh my gosh. I have been thinking about you because I'm doing this short little series around addiction and recovery. And I know that you have a very long history with that and quite the story to tell. So I wanted to see if you had a little bit of time where we could toss some questions your way. You actually caught me at the perfect time because I just finished fluffing up my stay ready wig. You know about those? (laughs) No. So like every person who's traveling should have a stay ready wig. It looks like your hair. And in case your hair is not tip top and you have to be somewhere, you can put on your stay ready wig and it'll take you through the event or whatever it is. 
Okay. Okay. So I, I love this. It's yeah. reminding me of back in the 90s, or I guess it was probably the 80s when I would watch George Jetson and Judy Jetson <laughs> would would have like these masks that would go on so she could answer her, yes. her you know, phone or whatever. Okay. But my question is then if your stay ready wig is traveling with you, does it get out of the stay ready mode? If it gets, yes, it does. That's why it has to be fluffed, which is what I just finished doing. <laughs> You're like, bitch, pay attention. And not like a porno fluffer, but like a real, like it needs to be fluffy. So, um, yeah, it's quite the little process to get it to look like my hair. But once it does, it's ready to go. Oh, I love that. I yeah. love that. It's 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 giving Moira from Shit's uh, Creek. Yes. It's yes, giving I Moira. Love her. Yes. <laughs> well, let's take a sharp turn and okay. talk about addiction, shall we? <laughs> yeah, let's do it. I'm ready. Let's go. So I have to say, so I've got Stash here with me. Uh Stash is your your brand new memoir, My yeah. Life in Hiding. Mm-hmm. And I was telling you before. Uh, I was telling you at another time when I was talking to you (laughs) how I have had such a difficult time even putting this down. It's so good. It's so raw. Uh, it's incredibly vulnerable and I would love to hear from you specifically about sort of the chronology that addiction played in your life. Um, I know there was a little bit of dabbling, with cocaine and stuff, and then really into a, a pretty deep ambient situation. Talk to me a little bit about that. Like, what was the chronology that it followed? Yeah. I mean, first of all, thank you for those kind words about the book. That just means everything to me. I love to hear that people couldn't put it down or don't want to put it down. I'm hearing that from people who um, understand addiction and people who don't and people who have addiction in their family and people who are addicts. So I'm glad there's a spectrum of people who are really able to find something to hang on to in this book. My experience with addiction is like the first piece of it, of the journey, I would call denial. Mm. I, uh, like you, like you mentioned, there was a period of time where I was, I call it my year of basing where I was free basing cocaine, which is smoking a chemically pure form of cocaine with a a gentleman Mm -hmm. who provided it for me. We were like kind of together. Mm -hmm. And the way that it actually looked was, so eventually freebasing became what people knew as crack. Mm -hmm. But this was actually not that. This was really glamorous. It was like parties and beautiful homes. And this had just been invented. Mm -hmm. And when I first was attending these parties, I didn't try it, but it looked really fun. Like it didn't look like something I didn't want, didn't not want to do. Like I, right. I didn't want to do it. It didn't look like something I needed to stay away from. But and then when I tried it, I really liked it a lot. And so my year was spent basically, you know, either a Friday night or a Saturday night um, or sometimes the whole weekend kind of going from party to party to party and doing this. And then during the week, I was back to my normal life. At the end of that year, one of those weekends went on for close to a week. And Mm. I missed picking up my mother at the airport because of it. I was not able to leave. I was like into the mindset of, I'll just get one more good one and then I'll, then I'll go. And so my parents, I was, I was a teenager. I was 19. I, I was an adult, but I was still a teenager. And my, 
parents um, got together with me, my dad by phone, my mom in person and said, you know, we're really concerned. We want you to go to like a 12-step program and and get some help. And I was like, oh, hell no, that's Mm-mm. not happening. You know, I thought I could do it on my own and I would just stop seeing that guy and I would never pick it up again. And because the consequence of that was too great, I didn't want to have to go seek help. And so I did. I didn't see that guy anymore, didn't pick it up again, never picked it up again in my life. 20s were super social, normal. I ran a business. A lot of it was like partying because I was in PR. Yep. I drank socially with my friends. It was never a problem. And and drugs weren't a problem with me again until after my kids were born, which, you know, is one of those things where I look back on it and it's absolutely backwards. It should be drugs were a problem with me until my kids were born right. in my heart. Right. Sure. Sure. And I put everything down because I was a mom. But for me, it was the opposite. And the um, kind of insidiousness of of my addiction began with doctor prescribed pills because I wasn't sleeping. And I am pretty sure that I was dealing with, you know, undiagnosed postpartum um, anxiety, not depression. I only make that distinction because I didn't know that there was one over the other. I didn't know that. I I didn't know that if I had postpartum depression, it didn't feel right. It didn't seem like I hit all those symptoms, but postpartum anxiety totally fit me. Mm -hmm. And, but like I said, I was never diagnosed. So I'm pretty sure I was dealing with that. And um, my regular doctor was just like, you know, let's get you sleeping again, prescribe me Ambien. I'd never taken it before. It felt like the magic panacea for me, like everything was better after that first night of sleep with Ambien. And and I did, I took it as prescribed for about six months. And then later on, I took it more often. And then, you know, a year it was every night. And then, you know, three years later, I needed another quarter, you know, one and a quarter to get to sleep. And then, you know, probably, so by the time my kids were like seven and eight, um, during the year of 2008, I was taking a lot. Mm-hmm. I was taking a lot. I was hiding it because I was take. I knew I was taking an alarming amount, yeah. and I didn't want anybody to be alarmed. <laughs> I wanted everybody right. to be be cool and stay over there, so I could just keep taking my Ambien. But it was an alarming amount. It was actually like lethal doses of it that I was taking every night. Jesus. I wasn't really aware of that. Let me ask you a quick question about the difference between the the cocaine experience and the ambient experience. Yeah. Did when you saw yourself starting to oh just add another one here or there. Okay, mm-hmm. yeah, we're at, we're at every night now or whatever. Mentally, did you correlate at all those two exp- experiences with substances as being linked in any way or was it two totally different scenarios for you? Like mentally, what was happening? I think the answer is deep down, yes, but it was very deep. Yeah. And I was not aware of it most of the time. There were moments in there where I'm like, this feels like that. This feels like I need more than I should. This feels like this comes before everything else, which is what it started to happen with the cocaine. And, but I was really, I just, I mean, I guess I was ignorant and then I didn't know that they could be 
like addiction was addiction. I just thought, but that was, I put that down. So I can't be an addict. Didn't pick it up again ever. Right. So that like, that's what, I don't know any addicts like that. Like what addict puts something down that's a problem at 19 and never picks it up again and then drinks normally for right. two decades. That doesn't make any sense. So I don't think I wanted to dig any deeper than that because that might have revealed some un inconvenient truths for me. Yeah. But but those were my my conscious thoughts was that I was okay. From what I understand it was like a good a good 6 year run with Ambien, right? Was that right? From beginning to end, yeah. Okay. I was really struck by this because I know when you were originally confronted by your parents about the cocaine situation, you looked at it in a very binary term of like, you're either a degenerate addict who cannot function or you have your shit together. And that I fall in that category. So no, Mm -hmm. nothing to see here. And then you write also about the hiding, you know, the, and the whole reason the book is called stash, right? Was there a way that you were proud, almost like I'm in control of this addiction. It's not in control of me, or I'm doing dependency correctly, or was I don't know, sort of an elitist engagement. I was incredibly smug about my ability to handle something that most people couldn't handle and to not ask for help. And nobody knows my ability to hide it. Honestly, there was still like when people from my life and a lot of people have from that time period, come up to me and say, I had no idea. There's part of me that goes, yes, sure. <laughs> no, you had no idea. I was able to pull it off. So yes, I was smug about the way that I was able to manage this thing. And I was smug about the fact that I was able to do it in secret. So walk me through the crash, like the figuring out, like I cannot, I can't keep doing this. I know that there were multiple, holy shit, what happened last night? I need to record everything in my diary sort of thing. I'm super curious what your relationship with that is now, especially because as I've gotten older, I become more acutely aware of lapses in memory Mm. now. now. And I wonder what that's like for you being in your 50s, going like, did I fuck up memory from that stint? I don't know. I'm curious what your thoughts are on that. Yeah, I mean that that's that's a really good question. What was the first part of the question? <laughs> like I, I guess that's funny, but I'm not being funny. I really don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> My point exactly, Laura. Yes. Now I don't remember because of perimenopause. <laughs> oh no. Wait. Yeah. Oh, losing losing memories and stuff. So talk to me about how it spun out to the point where you were like, this can't continue anymore. Oh, that's right. That's right. Yeah. In in recovery, they call that a bottom. Sure. That's what you're talking about. And I've had some pretty spectacular moments that I write about in the book that any one of them could have been my bottom. My bottom was pretty unspectacular. And it was it was really a very solo experience where I had made some deals with myself. And I was like, you know, I'm not going to do this and I'm not going to do this. And if this ever happens and then, and then they happened. And so I, so that, that was one part. The other part was there was a ticking clock because I was in a divorce proceedings. 
I had filed for divorce. We were both, you know, trying to conclude the divorce. (laughs) And um, we weren't there yet. And I was really, really scared that because no one knew. Um, I was really scared that I would be found out either by my my now ex-husband or someone else who might tell him. And then my relationship with my children would be in danger because I wouldn't be able to be in their lives the way I wanted to. So everything I did was kind of in service of keeping it a secret for that purpose and getting high. Like Mm -hmm. those are the two things that were paramount for me. And toward the end, the rock rock bottom part, which was in July of 2008, the, it became very clear to me that I was going to lose this race, that I was not going to be able to keep this a secret long enough. And then I'd just be kind of out there at anyone's mercy. Mm-hmm. So the only thing for me to do was to take matters into my own hand and get hands and get well before I was confronted. Mm-hmm. That was my plan. That was my thinking at that time. I had crossed all these boundaries. I was sitting there like in a puddle on my floor in our second home. And I was just like, okay, it's over. I've got to go get help because if I don't, I'm going to be sent. Basically, someone's going to say, you know, there'll be an intervention and you have to go. And I did not want that to happen. I wanted to go on my own terms. Wow. And so you checked into rehab? I did. A little, a, a little later. It was um, 10 days later, I checked into rehab. I'm so curious about that process for you. My what I imagine is that it's sort of dichotomous in I'm so glad that I'm actually finally changing this pattern and also I'm furious that I have to do this and maybe even more than two feelings like just and also really wanting to get high and I don't know that's my assumption. What was that yeah. like for you? I think the experience for me was different than most of my peers like Scott, who's my boyfriend, who I met there and is still my boyfriend, like he got there and it was like when someone runs into a house and closes the door before all the bullets hit them. Yes. Like he was like, I made it in. I'm safe. Like, I'm okay. I'm okay. I'm okay. While he was there, he was really grateful to be there. And it showed in his disposition. He was this very like casually happy generous, warm, spiritual guy in there. I was the opposite. I the the I was not happy to be there. I felt no relief that I was there. There wasn't even like the satisfaction that I had. I had held them off. I had done something before I could be caught. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Yeah. Like it was that, on your terms. Yeah. 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 I wouldn't have to fear getting caught because now now it was over. I didn't even have that relief. I was just pissed. I felt sentenced. And I felt so sorry for myself. Mm. I was in a tremendous amount of self-pity. And I resented everybody that wasn't. So if you weren't angry and in self-pity, you could not be my friend. Because that's that was the only people, those are the only people I wanted to be around while I was there. I hated everything about it. I hated every meeting. I hated every group we had to go to. I hated where I slept. I hated the other women. I hated the other men. <laughs> and I sure. hated it for 30 days. Are you in, besides Scott, are you in contact with any of those folks still? Uh, Laura, 
Laura, who was my roommate, okay, Laura R., she and I stayed in contact afterwards. I actually just talked to her last week. Okay. Yeah. I didn't hate her. I, I really liked her. <laughs> okay, good. Good. Shout out to Laura. Well, let me go back. I really want to... I'm curious about the memory thing. Since yeah, yeah. Clearly, I lose my thought process all the time. So I'm, I'm curious about that at all. Like, were yeah. there ways in which you went back and reviewed journals about what had actually transpired and you kind of went, holy shit, I can't believe that happened or how much am I losing? What... When you read that and you read a reality that happened that you don't remember, what was the process like that for you? So that that was really interesting. Um, you were absolutely right. The Ambien is a memory destroyer. Like it's wiped clean. It's the Etch-A-Sketch when you shake it. There's yep. no remnants of anything there. However, I think because, Amy, it was so painful, a lot of those that time in particular, those 10 months I write about are still etched in my memory. So it wasn't really that I couldn't remember this stuff, but I wanted to double check it with my journals, with my day planners, with photos. And I did find that some things were different, but I, I wasn't too far off. Like I really remember that year. There obviously are parts of it that I don't remember that, that I didn't like excavate. And if I had, I would have put it, put it in the book. But I'm sure there. Are, I didn't. I didn't journal every day. There are. I did a day planner every day, but I didn't journal every day. And uh, somewhere after I hired with a divorce attorney, I stopped journaling because she told me to, because we didn't want any evidence. So I don't have a journal record from like April um, through the divorce in December. But I did keep records in my day planner, and I have pictures of of things when they happened that. You know, this is before a smartphone. Um, I had a Blackberry, but I actually got pictures developed. They have the dates on in the corners on those pictures. I have boxes of them. I went through and I like laid things out like a calendar and just double checked. Like, did I look like this here? Did I, did I show up for this event that, mm -hmm. that was in my day planner? Oh yes. Here's the picture of me at the podium at that PA meeting. So that happened the way that I remember. I wasn't really surprised by any of the memories. I really did remember most of it. Okay. I'm surprised by that. Right, right. Especially if we're talking lethal <laughs> levels. So so let's go back then. You're you're completing the 30 days of rehab. What happens next? Ugh. So all I wanted to do every single day, every single day I was there was get home to my kids. Sure. I, that's all I thought about. I didn't sleep while I was there because they took me off my sleeping meds and there's a rebound insomnia thing happen that happens. And, you know, I, I'm sure I probably wouldn't be alive if I hadn't dozed off a couple of times, but I, I never went to sleep and woke up. That never happened. And I wanted to sleep. Like, so I just dreamt about my bed and my pillows and drawing my blackout blinds and not sharing a room with three other women, which I'd never done before. And, you know, just being sandwiched between my kids and loving on them and, you know, having like our adventures and then watching friends so we could go to sleep and then reading them bedtime stories. Like I was just, that's all, I was obsessive about that. That's all I thought about. That's all I wanted to do. And when I got home, I was really shocked to find that I was just frozen with anxiety. 
I walked into my house and I felt like an alien, you know, and my kids are so excited and they were talking to me and I was trying to respond the way I know that I should respond. And maybe I did. I don't know. I don't know what it looked like, but it, and to me in my head, I sounded like, like I didn't belong there and I knew I didn't belong there. And I was seriously paranoid about what might have taken place while I was there. Like if people had been turned against me, I had hidden so much so carefully. How much did people know? How much did the housekeeper know? How much did my mom know? How much did his family know? How much did the parents at school know? Like I didn't know. I had been entirely sequestered for 30 days without it only really had access to, you know, my kids and my divorce attorney. I was I was really weirded out about that. And it took me a while to kind of melt into being a mom again. Mm-hmm. Like everything felt really forced. It, it for me, it seems like it must have been at least a week. I don't know. Maybe it was just a few days, but but that felt like a long time to not know how to be a mom to your kids when, you know, I talk about this, my maternal instinct. I understand is the biggest instinct that I have. It's bigger than my instinct was for self-preservation. Otherwise, I wouldn't have been taking those lethal amounts of Ambien every night. That this addiction was bigger than my maternal instinct was beyond alarming, right? And then my quest to find something bigger than the addiction, which was bigger than my maternal instinct, which was bigger than my instinct for self-preservation, was why I went to treatment. Like I needed to find something bigger than that so that I could get well again and get restored to that place of being a mom, my, this this innate place for me, this intuitive place. And it didn't feel intuitive or innate when I got back. And that really fucked me up. It, it was, I just didn't know, will I ever get it back? Mm-hmm. Is this how I am forever? Right. And I didn't want to talk to anybody about it because I didn't, I didn't, I still wasn't, I wasn't in the habit of telling people anything that was going on with me. Had I, I probably would have found that most women feel like that. Most moms, when they come back, some moms feel like that when they come back from a business trip mm-hmm. and, you know, the household's gone on without them and the kids and the dad are in a rhythm and they're not really a part of it. And they kind of want to, it's like double Dutch. You're trying to see mm-hmm. where you can jump in, but I didn't know any of that. I just thought it was me. You know, that reminds me of a common theme that's kind of threaded through the book, which is this idea of give him nothing or give them nothing. Yeah. Yeah. And you talk so eloquently about it starting off with your stepfather, who was incredibly emotionally abusive. And just it really what we're what we're talking about is either the freeze response. I mean, it really is a freeze response. It's just completely stopping, stonewalling whoever it is that's there. And that that became sort of this pattern. And I can hear that reflected in that anecdote too, of like, don't give them anything. Don't let them see you falter. Mm -hmm. Don't let, you know. So I'm, I'm curious as you have healed and as you've nurtured what appears to be a very rewarding relationship with Scott, your current partner, how has how have you had to work through mm. like actually letting people see you or being dependent or interdependent with someone else like what's been that personal growth journey like for you that might be the biggest journey of my life the quest to discover the difference between privacy and secrecy was a really long journey for me <laughs> i just thought they were the same i completely conflated them 
um, that's my business. That's my business. And you don't get to know. Um, it was my, my therapist who I was kind of made to see when I got out <laughs> of treatment. <laughs> I was resentful about that too. Sure. Um, Margarita, who you see, I fell in love with her uh, and fell in love with, with, I don't know, I fell in love with therapy, but I certainly fell in love with it with her because of, of what transpired during our sessions. But she was the first person who had, who directed me to look like, yes, you can be a private person, mm-hmm. but if you're going to stay sober, you can't have secrets. And I was like, that's ridiculous. I have to have secrets. <laughs> what do you mean? Pass. Like, everybody has secrets. And she's like, no, they don't. Some, you can keep things private. That's different. Mm-hmm. And then she explained to me further, like the secret is something that you would die if anyone find out. If if anyone ever found this out, then you would just die. You would do anything to protect it. Mm-hmm. Privacy is 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 a matter of dignity. This is something I'm fine to talk about it, but I keep this part private because it is private. It's just personal for me or personal for me and whoever. And the irony is that I discovered, you know, and I say it's ironic because I wrote this very vulnerable book, but I am a private person, mm-hmm. maybe an intensely private person. So there are things that are not in this book because they are private to me. I, one of those is my my relationship with Scott. And that's not in t- and that's not true for the totality of it. There are lots of aspects of our relationship that I discuss. But there are, there are a lot of things that I really just want to keep for us. And so I do. And they're not a secret, but they are private between us. I have a lot of private things with my kids, mm-hmm. a lot of privacy around my ex-husband. Um, again, not secrets, but this whole idea that I could continue to go through life in this armor that I had constructed, you know, at, at five or six years old, uh, had to be abandoned if I were to not just be abstinent because for me now, almost 15 years later, that's that's not what sobriety is about. It's not just about the abstinence because like we, we were talking about earlier, addiction is addiction is addiction. Like it could be anything. It doesn't need to be a substance. Um, it's anything in which I continue to indulge despite negative consequences. When I live like that, I'm not free. And so this freedom that I'm pursuing is out of reach if I'm in that armor. I can't, I can't have both. I can't protect myself that way and have the freedom that I've come to know and love and cherish. Um, Scott, because we didn't live together. We, we weren't a rehab hookup. We, you know, waited for a little while before we had sex. And then <laughs> we dated for like six years before we moved in together. Mm-hmm. And then we moved in together and, and started blending our families and. Because he is the closest person to me, he's the person I wake up with and go to sleep every morning. I get the most practice with him mm-hmm. and being vulnerable. He is exactly the way he was in treatment. He's spiritual, vulnerable, warm, easygoing. He's not a secretive guy at all. <laughs> the first time I took him to my nail salon because he wanted to get his nails done, I, I took him with me and he's sitting in the chair opposite me and he's like, Hey, I haven't seen you since this morning. What did you end up eating for lunch? And I looked around. I was like, I'll tell you later. (laughs) I I don't want everybody listening. And he's baffled. He's like, why? And so I text him. Oh, my God. (laughs) We are not talking about this in front of all these people. (laughs) 
but he's like, he talks to everybody and he's just like, he's such the opposite of me. So the work has been to answer your question. The first thing is I don't lie anymore. And that includes lying by omission. I don't say I'm five minutes away when I haven't left my house. Mm -hmm. I don't, you know, tell you a more convenient version of the truth. Mm -hmm. I tell you the truth. That is a huge vulnerability for me. Each time I do that, when I'm scared, I'm amazed that the earth doesn't swallow me whole or a boulder doesn't fall on my head. Like, I think the consequences are going to be so dire because I just, I just disappointed you by telling you this truth that I wanted to keep from you, or I just, you know, revealed too much about my, like, whatever it might be, whatever, whatever story I'm telling myself about what I need to come forward with has been a lie. The story, I don't know if it's been a lie. It hasn't come true. It's been false. Mm-hmm. that's the first thing I do. And then the second thing I do is that Scott and I, and it's so painful for me, Amy, but we talk. <laughs> I don't like it. It's my favorite. I'm much better at it, but <laughs> but we talk. If one of us has a problem, I can't just go to, go up to my office and close the door, mm-hmm. you know, because he's right on me going, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. And I could say, no, I don't want to. You don't get to know what's going on but I choose not to. Mm-hmm. And so I choose the pain of having the conversation I don't want to have. And on the other side of it, things are always still surprisingly better. So before we continue on, I wanted to ask a quick favor from you. Do you ever listen to the pod? And I think this might happen for you where you think, damn, I really wish so-and-so could hear this. Maybe it's your coworker who could actually use a lesson or two on boundaries, or maybe it is a women's group that you're a part of where everyone is super on board for speaking up for themselves, but nobody really knows what that really sounds like. Okay, where here's where you come in. I have three battle-tested and badass keynote speeches that are ready to be delivered to your company, organization, group, association. So if you, your community, or anyone you know could benefit from me rocking the mic, like who couldn't use some new tools, right? Please send them over to amygreensmith.com slash speaking where you or they can message me directly about specific needs for the audience. Shocker, the three keynotes are focused around speaking up, contending with fear, and accessing enoughness. And all three of them can be delivered either in person or virtually, and of course, can be completely customized for specific audience needs. So again, simply send them to amygreensmith.com dot com slash speaking where they can get in touch with me because listen, it is time that women everywhere have the tools necessary to use their voice, take up space and advocate for their wants, needs and opinions like yesterday. And if you end up orchestrating an opportunity for me to speak with your group, you will officially get unlimited squeezes from me. (laughs) And I'm sure you're all in now. And be sure to let them know that I can always temper my colorful language if needed. And thank you. Before we continue, I wanted to take a quick moment to thank Let's Get Checked for sponsoring this podcast. Let's Get Checked makes professional health testing super easy by letting you get tested without having to visit a healthcare provider. Well, 
testing for what, you might ask? Well, they have a huge array of at-home testing kits, including women's health, men's health, sexual health, and wellness kits. In fact, I did two of the women's hormone testing kits, and it could not have been easier. And then when I received the results, I was able to simply forward them onto my naturopath to get her thoughts. All you do is you simply choose your test online. It will be delivered to you in discreet packaging with next day delivery. And then once your sample arrives in the lab, confidential results will be available from your secure online account within two to five days. Once your results are available, they'll be reviewed by a physician, and then a nurse will contact you for a consultation over the phone. And in some cases, a physician will be able to provide prescriptions to the pharmacy of your choosing. Let's Get Checked laboratories are CLIA approved and CAP accredited, which are the highest ranking levels of accreditation. Let's Get Checked lets you avoid uncomfortable office visits by providing you with access to home testing and professional medical consultations without ever leaving your home. It has never been this simple to get tested. So get this. If you want to try a test from Let's Get Checked, all you got to do is go to trylgc.com slash bold truth to save a whopping 30% on your first test kit. 30%. Just use the code bold truth, all one word at checkout. That's bold truth to save 30% on your first test test kit. Now let's jump back into today's topic. There are a couple of things that I was kind of extracting as you were saying, telling that story. And one is the many, many flavors of addiction and how you can have one person who their armor has been secrecy and really lying has been the armor, right? And then you've got Scott also going through a program, but just unabashedly open and, and, and I think it's an important thing for people to hear, right? Because you see things like tropes of like the faces of addiction and stuff like that. And we don't look at how there are so many very affluent folks out there living what looks to be this beautiful life and they are riddled with addiction. So That's one element that I wanted to talk about. The other that I wanted to pull out of there is is that you chose very deliberately to practice vulnerability with a safe person. A lot of times we've been hurt by people who, in retrospect, they weren't necessarily a safe place to land. Mm. And so we then equate the behavior of sharing with people as not being safe when rather it's about discretion of the individual with whom we choose to be vulnerable or practice, Mm -hmm. right? Or be messy with, like you were saying. And, And I also love that you were saying that an act of vulnerability can quite simply be honesty. Yes. It doesn't have to be, let me tell you the my whole life story and how I had difficulty in school or with a stepdad or whoever. Because a lot of times I think that's what we think. Like, okay, to start healing or to start practicing vulnerability, I have to bear everything with everyone. And it can take so many different flavors, really. So I love that. Thank you. Yeah, and it can be, you know, so what I've learned to do in my 50s is not qualify my no, you know, and, and not, and I know, I know you know all about this because that's like, so that's your brand is just like, 
but but it was something I had to learn was to say, you know, I'm I'm not going on that 12 girl sleepover to Vegas because I'm that's just it's just not my thing. And I love you and we'll celebrate another way. But yeah. but that's something that I'm not going to do. And I don't say that I can't do it because the timing's not good. That's I right. don't say that I have a, I have a cold and I can't make it. I don't say I'm too busy and I can't make it. It's I say, you know, the truth. Mm-hmm. And I I don't I'm not brutally honest. I don't have to tell them things that might hurt their feelings about mm-hmm. it. I'll just say that that's something that's not for me, but you know, this is for me and I love you and that has nothing one has nothing to do with the other. Right. And that that's the kind of honesty, the disappointing people honesty that I avoided before. Mm-hmm. Cuz I have a hard time with other people's disappointment. Really? I love it. Yeah. <laughs> Get in line. <laughs> uh, I know when people when people will tell me like, I don't, I just, I hate confrontation. I'm like, really? <laughs> That's odd. I've never heard that. But, funny. but it's exactly what you are talking about with these conversations with Scott, where yeah. It's not your favorite. Like you don't feel like, yay, I can't wait to do all this, but you recognize that there is a payoff and that the alternative, sure the fuck wasn't working. No. And you know, that that imprint on my memory, that pain of the year of 2008, like I don't want to do anything that heads back there. Mm-hmm. I don't want to do anything that's the beginning of a path that leads to a a road that leads to a highway that leads back there. Like I'm not going back there. So whatever I have to do, you know, and a lot of times it's not letting my feelings dictate my actions. Like Mm -hmm. I, I can feel one way. I I work out five days a week. I never feel like it. I meditate every morning. I never feel like doing that, Mm -hmm. you know, but I, I, I do both of those things because the, I am better, even if I don't feel better, Right. I'm exhausted after I work out. I never yes. get that payoff, those hormones that are supposed to what is it? Is it dopamine? I always or get oxytocin? I think it I always get dopamine and an uh, the <laughs> another one. <laughs> serotonin? <laughs> yeah, serotonin. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So you're supposed to get like this payload of it after you work out really hard. Never. 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 I'm but exhausted I my joints hurt. Yeah. Yes, thank you. Yeah. But but I am better because of it. I have you know, I have this really amazing life, you know, that that I get to live because I make I have all these non-negotiables that I don't think, oh, I don't feel like this today. Right. Doesn't right. matter. Yeah, I think that's one of the greatest lessons in personal development is if you are always waiting around for motivation, you might be waiting yes. forever. Sometimes yeah. it's not about finding the motivation. Sometimes it's about just getting into action. So I, I really love that you said that. Yes. I want to circle back and talk about a core concept of Stash, your book, which talks about taking place at the intersection of race, privilege, and addiction. And I think this is really, really interesting because you have sort of a web of 
uh, or a through line, I guess, where you kind of continually dance with completely different levels of the economic spectrum, right? <laughs> yeah. Where there will be massive affluence, but then maybe I'm hanging out with someone who's legitimately a pimp and doing, you know, and so, and you sort of have a similar experience through throughout. Um, I would love to hear a little bit more about your process of dealing with addiction as a black woman, as an entrepreneur, uh, as somebody who is somewhat in the public eye with a high profile marriage, the, the, perhaps the struggles therein that we might off of face value, we might not necessarily realize like, wow, that was really, really a difficult thing. Because I do know early on, you had talked about feeling the pull to represent Black excellence because you were so enveloped by white communities. Mm -hmm. So you better represent and do it right. So I'm curious, as you got into this place where you're like, holy shit, I'm not doing it right. And mm -hmm. I'm in these certain social circles and, and on these various boards and all of that, what that experience was like for you in representing Black excellence. And I've got this secret. Thank you for that question. Representing Black excellence when I was a little kid. I, I think that that the idea that the concept of that might be out of reach for people who haven't been the only one in the room sure. before. But if you think about like, if I had been the only girl at an all boys school, of course, I'd be representing women, mm -hmm. right? Everything I did would be what girls do. Girls mm -hmm. do this, girls do that, because that's the only experience they had. Mm -hmm. And so the awareness was like that for me. Like I knew, I knew, and, and, and I should also say that like my, my time in school, um, in Cambridge, Montessori school and Cambridge, Mass, where I lived until I was almost 13 was delightful, like storybook. I walked to school, you know, I came home and my mom would be baking and the classrooms were really warm and inviting. I love my teachers. I love my, my classmates but I was the only black one. Mm -hmm. And so there was always that dual experience that I had of recognizing what I represented and then also being a part of. I could never be as much of a part of as everybody else because I was the only black one. Um, no one told me, you better be better because they're going to judge you. I just assumed. They didn't have yeah. to. Yeah. But people do. People tell their kids like you no, you go in there and you you cannot be as good as everybody. You have to be better. Right. Because they're going to be judging you. You know, this the black tax they call it work twice as hard to get half as far. And and that was never vocalized to me. You know, I think addiction would have been a lot different for me if I had been a black woman among black people most of my life. But I wasn't. Um everywhere I went, I was in white spaces. As I grew up, I was in white spaces. I, I had a lot of black friends, but the spaces where I spent most of my time were white, like the school. Mm -hmm. Um, and well, I, there were all schools, but not my school at that point. It was my kids' school. And I was very involved there. Um, when, when I worked in public relations, all the, all of my clients were studios and, and labels and all the executives were white. So it was just, I kept, finding myself or putting myself in these positions, you know, when I was an adult where I was the only black one or one of two, or maybe one of, you know, but a, a, a minority. 
And so when I was at school and this addiction was, when I was at my kid's school and I was so involved and I represented something that, um, I represented the parents, literally, I was the president of the parent association. The idea that I could be a drug addict would, was just like, I couldn't, I couldn't imagine if anybody thought that of me. Because I had been, I was the first black PA president at that school since 1974. And this was in 2007, 2008. It's a big deal there. The parent association president is a big deal. It's a, it's an independent school. It was founded in 1933. Um, women got admitted before blacks. Blacks got admitted in like the sixties. Women were admitted a few years before that. And, it's it's a very elite school. And so this was a position of honor mm-hmm. that had been bestowed upon me. And I did not want to fuck it up. Mm-hmm. Right. So had this been a black environment in a black school, even with the position of honor, I wouldn't have had the burden of I'm going to fuck it up for all of us mm-hmm. in the same way that I did in this in this very white space. I thought if I fuck this up there's never going to be another black PA president. They're going to look at every single other black mom that comes in here and wonder if she's an addict too. You know, everybody that has some kind of private or shady behavior, they're going to wonder what she's hiding. And I just didn't want that. I didn't want that to be um, how they saw me, how they saw us. That kept me, that idea I shouldn't say it kept me, but I kept myself going in my addiction because of that. Like I needed to, my idea was that I was going to get a handle on this. I didn't know how, but, you know, as you read in my book, every other thing that kind of came up, I got a handle on in some way or another. Like I figured it out or I, I, I worked the system or, you know, something happened. I couldn't get a handle on this. But I didn't think it was a never. I just thought it was a yet. Mm-hmm. So my idea was that I was going to get a handle on this and then I would be okay. And it just never occurred to me that um, I was going to have to, you know, surrender. Um, and I really, I didn't want to do that period, but I really didn't want to do it as a black woman. Yeah, of course. It's, it's very understandable. And I'm, I'm really curious now that were about 15 years beyond that. And you have this book that is quite open. Do you have concerns about that same issue with that same community? Here's the thing. Did you see that article in the Washington Post a few weeks ago about Quitlet? Uh Uh-uh, no. Q-U-I-T, L-I-T, it's literature, it's books for people who are sober curious or looking at their relationship with alcohol or or drugs. Books. So it's a new genre that that's popped up. And it there are some, you know, really heavies in it. There's Holly Whitaker, there's Brene Brown, there's Laura McCowan, there's um Annie Grace, um, and Lamont. Like all these women write what is called now Quitlet. They've made it cool. It's cool to be in that genre. People want to know how you did it, what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. So no, I'm not I'm not afraid. I'm 
hoping that stash becomes part that is on that same bookshelf mm-hmm. with these other books and is talked about in the same way and is purchased at the same rate. Because the thing is, I'm not ashamed, but the next black woman who wants to get sober and doesn't see these books on a shelf, she might be ashamed if she only sees books written by white women. Mm-hmm. There are no Asian women in this genre. There are no black women. There are no brown women in this genre. When you Google it, it's all white women that come up. I would like to populate those shelves with people, obviously a very diverse array of people, selfishly with black stories, because those were not around when I got sober. It's one of the reasons I wrote the book mm-hmm. is because I there were no comps for it when I pitched it. I couldn't compare it to anything except for books written by white people, specifically, again, white women. And when I was going through it, like 2008, 2009, because that's how I got through everything, because I didn't have anybody to talk to, or I wouldn't talk to anybody about it. I read, mm-hmm. you know, I read Postcards from the Edge by Carrie Fisher. I read uh, Drinking a Love Story by Carolyn Knapp, um, Pete Hamill's A Drinking Life. Like I read all these books and I found myself, but I didn't find myself completely in them, you know, but I found enough. It was enough so that I was like, oh, somebody drinks like that. Oh, somebody obsesses like that. Oh, somebody you know, put themselves in danger for that. And that came first. That was more important. And it was so good to read about that when I was getting sober. And when I was living that first year of sobriety, I just needed to not feel alone. And, you know, it's, but I didn't see myself. I didn't see anything. I didn't read any articles written by black women or brown women or Asian women. I didn't, or any, any others. Right. No other people. It was all right. white women. So I, you know, what I'm what I'm afraid of is that there's not enough. That's what I'm afraid of. I'm happy to add my my voice to the chorus, to add my book to the shelf, and I want there to be more. That would be the thing that would, you know, make me anxious. You know, that's that's the anxiety is to let's get more out there because mm-hmm. I know that there are people searching right now who aren't getting the help that they need. Yeah. And I mean, we you don't have to look much further than the recent Black Ariel and all yes. of the little girls and their responses to representation. Yeah. And how unbelievably important that is. And I love that, you know, in the very beginning of your book, you talk about like, this is my story. I'm not telling anyone they need to do anything a specific way, or Mm -hmm. I'm not bashing anyone, but I also didn't see anyone like me. Yeah. I couldn't learn from anyone who looked like me and I want to give that opportunity to other people. And I just am so grateful for you. And I'm so grateful that this is getting out there. It is such a captivating work. I would love to see it you know, work your connections, Laura, because I would really like to see it on the screen. (laughs) As would I, as would I, Amy. (laughs) So if you need somebody to be cast as the annoying white girl, I'll, I'll take it. Oh, that's great. I'll remember that. One other curiosity. I'm, I'm really curious what, and then we'll, we'll wrap up because I, I definitely want to be mindful of your time. What is your perspective on the rampant pharmaceutical market in the U.S. where 
you can't watch a television show without, or a Super Bowl or anything without just tons of drug commercials. And the hyper diagnostic way that we are ready to give you a pill for this or that or this or that. And and how yours started off as something very medically sound, right? I yeah. say with quotes. Do you have a perspective at all on the pharmaceutical industry? And if you're like, yes, and I don't want to get into it, that's fine too. Yeah, it's probably not a short answer. And I, I might have to reflect on it a little bit, but I will say that my my dad, um, you know, I mentioned this in the in the book. He's a he's a physician, he's an HIV doctor. He's also an allopath, which means that he believes that there's a medication for he would he will prescribe something for okay. whatever ails you. And so I grew up with that mindset. And and now where he is, he's 83 and he's also um, sober, uh, almost 40 years sober. Oh, good job. His viewpoint has changed, but he still will prescribe. You know, he, he'll say, try this, try that, try this, but he's going to prescribe you something if there's an ailment. I, I think the, the pharmaceutical industry in this country is um, quite profitable. I think that they uh, are very much like big alcohol and big tobacco, where they they is profit at any cost, mm-hmm. and they are not. You know, obviously, big alcohol and big tobacco aren't here to help us. I'm a little confused about the FDA. I don't know why food and the Drug Administration are all the same. I feel like there's something shady going on there. I don't trust the pharmaceutical industry at all. Uh, I don't think they're to blame for everything. But I I don't think they're regulated in the way that they need to be regulated. I also think that there are some really, really good necessary drugs out there um, that people need that I wouldn't want to alter anything. I wouldn't want to alter so they couldn't access them the way that they need to. So I think that whatever steps we take toward managing this very out of control situation needs to be done with that in mind. And that's right. a big job that I'm I'm not even prepared to tackle, but I don't hate them. I don't hate the pharmaceutical industry because of what my experience. I don't understand why somebody who has more power than me hasn't gathered a group of people to really take this to Washington and look at it in the way that it needs to be looked at. Yeah, I it's it's always curious where resentment stays, you know, and I was curious if there was any, like any resentment around that or being prescribed or feeling like you're in the care of someone. And then I'm, I'm reflecting kind of on, I don't know if you've seen the, the show dope sick. Love that show. It really, y'all please go and check that out. But first make sure you buy Laura's book, Um, but it, it, yeah, (laughs) yeah. First read that. But my, it really shifted my perspective because trying to be the good liberal that I am, I really looked at the opioid epidemic through sort of jaded lens. I'm like, Oh sure. Now that it's a white issue, now we have all these empathy right but let's go to the crack epidemic and it's handled very very differently so i didn't have much compassion and i recognize there's a lot there for me to unpack and learn but seeing how the opioid crisis had affected people 
um, in ways where I just, I had no idea that's how it was happening and being kind of enlightened to that and it coming through the pharmaceutical system. And that really changed my perspective on a lot of things, but, uh, that was just coming to mind. And I was wondering if there was any. Yeah, I, I know I don't have any resentment overall. I mean, I think that, you know, Purdue and that whole thing, like that was, that was just, I mean, if you haven't seen the series, please watch that series. It's, it's insane that this happened the way that it happened unchecked. Mm-hmm. And was allowed to happen the way that it did. I'm actually sitting on a panel with the woman who wrote that book. Um, nice. Very excited in a couple of weeks. And, um, but yeah, I don't, it, that's, that's not where my resentment is. And my resentment right. isn't at the doctor who prescribed it for me either. It's very much the stigma in society. That's, that's where my resentment is. Yeah. So obviously, I mean, we could talk for hours, but I, need to let you go get back to your wig and make sure that she's that she's t- all fluffy and curly in I'll top send you form. a picture of her. Um I would love that. I would love for you to just as we end obviously tell them where they can get the book, but I would love for you to just say where to start if someone's listening and they're feeling that tug of like I like to think that I'm in control of this and I'm not sure that I am. I don't know if I'm ready to let this go yet just that real waffling on the edge place, what your words of wisdom might be for them of a place to start or get curious and then where they can can buy a stash and read it. Yeah. I mean, I think that um, my experience was my fear of discomfort was huge. It was a juggernaut. I was so afraid of being uncomfortable. If I departed one iota from my routine or the drugs or like how my rituals, I was afraid I would be really uncomfortable. If I went to treatment, I was afraid I was going to be really uncomfortable. Discomfort is is something I want to avoid at all costs. And that's another thing I've learned to do in these past, like I said, almost 15 years is is kind of walk into that discomfort. And sometimes it's terrible. Sometimes it is. And but then you get through it. And then you're on the other side of something. And I think, like I said earlier, if you're experiencing negative consequences uh, with something that you're indulging in, whatever it is, whether it's obsessive thoughts, whether it's exercise, whether it, you know, it doesn't have to be a substance, but it could be food, it could be work. If you're, you know, missing out time with your family because of this, if you are, you know, finding yourself, you know, just like having negative thoughts or self self hatred or whatever it is, because because of anything that you're indulging in. And if you look at that, don't let the fear of discomfort stop you from taking the next step just to explore. You know, going to treatment and getting off drugs was something that I tried. I didn't think it was going to stick. I I really thought that I would probably, because I would never be able to sleep again. I didn't think I was going to do that forever. It ended up being something that worked for me. You know, sobriety works for me. It may not work for everybody. But to try it, you know, whatever abstinence doesn't work for everybody, but it might work for you, mm-hmm. but you won't know until you try it. Yeah. So to to look at those negative consequences, see where they're coming from and not be afraid of dis- the discomfort of taking that first step, whatever that looks like, you know, ironically asking someone, you don't have to put out, you know, a, a post to the world, but you can ask somebody who has a life that you admire, maybe has recovery in any area that you admire. 
and tell them what, what your what your challenges are and ask if they can point you in the right direction or help. Thank you so much for not just not just sharing your time here, but sharing your story in this book. And I mean, obviously, I don't know personally what that feels like as a black woman, but I'm so grateful mm. for the black population to see themselves depicted in this way. And mm. I hope it is just the beginning. I'm going to hold that intention for you too. Yeah. Just thank you for your grace and just who you are. I appreciate you so much. You know, I, I love what you do. I love how you do it. And I'm just happy to be on, you know, I'm happy to be on the Amy Greensmith bus. I'm <laughs> glad I have a seat, you know. <laughs> oh, anytime, anytime. Yeah, thank All you. right, my friend, I'll let you get back to your wig and we'll talk <laughs> soon. All right. Thank you. Bye. Bye. <sighs> what a story. And let me tell y'all, I have been devouring this book of hers. You definitely want to go check it out. It's already released now. You can find all the information that you need in the show notes for this episode, amygreensmith.com slash EP482. You'll want to get your hands on this book because let me tell you, at the time that I gave her this call, I had not gotten through as much as I have now. And it is such a great mixture of a genuinely riveting fucking story that should be made into a movie 100%, but also the vulnerability and the strength and the courage that it took for her to address issues of race and privilege and addiction in her specific sphere. And, uh, I definitely think we need more powerful black women, women of color, indigenous folks who are sharing their stories because they deserve to be platformed. So I highly encourage you go grab that book. Next week, we're going to be talking to Annie Grace. You will not want to miss this. She is a force in the alcohol-free movement, and I have done her alcohol experiments a few times, and it has been fantastic. So be sure to join us next week. And I believe that that is it. Please scoot over to Instagram. You can find me under the handle Hey Amy Smith, And just let me know what you thought of this episode or what your big takeaways were. And please remember, you are enough. Your voice matters. So go out there and speak your bold-faced truth. Okay, wait, 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 just one more thing. So these podcasts, it turns out, don't actually rate and review themselves. So I would be over the moon if you would leave a review, rate the show, subscribe, and tell anyone you know who needs to start speaking the fuck up for themselves. And if you do, I will give you a mini pig. Just kidding, but I will be so very incredibly grateful. Okay, thank you. Bye.